how you're perceived is what brand is about. How a thing is perceived is what its brand is. And we have many amazing brands. And the moment you mention the name of the brand, suddenly there are various characteristics that come to mind, whether that's an Apple or a PayPal or a Venmo. Suddenly, in your mind, you created a mental model of okay, what that word actually means. The same thing happens with your name. When your name is mentioned, what is the characteristics that people implicitly jump to within a millisecond? That's what your brand is. From Seven CTOs, my name is Etienne De Bruyne, and you're in the CTO studio. We have a very special guest in the CTO studio today. Shri Shivananda is the CTO at PayPal. He was also recently appointed the EVP for product and platform engineering at PayPal. And due to some cosmic collision, I can call him a friend. No idea how that happened. But he's also a huge fan of seven CTOs. And we dug into how valuable his network is to him. Listen to the end because he shares some tips for how he nurtures relationships with his engineers at the massive scale that PayPal is. I hope you enjoy this as much as I did. Let's go. Shri, welcome back. Thanks for having me again. It's good to be back. I've enjoyed my conversations with you and I'm looking forward to this one. Me too. And I love it when your people talk to me. One day I'll have my people talk to your people, talk to my people. But what I love about your team is you've surrounded yourself with some really warm, awesome people to work with. So I just wanted to publicly commend you and them for just how wonderful it is to always engage you, to get you on a chat like this, how accessible you are. I really think that in this day and age, it's such a strange phenomenon. And I really want to say thank you for that. No, thank you. And I'll absolutely pass it on to the team. They'll be thrilled to hear it. And as you know, leadership at the end of the day is all about building great teams. Uh, it's not an act of one. It's the act of many passionate people that come together. Yes. And you just made a shocking disclosure before we went, before I hit record, which was that you read all your emails almost in the same day. Yes. My SLA on emails is that I'll finish reading all of them in the same day. I have a massive set of rules that organize it to where I pay attention in real time to the email I need to pay attention to. And then I make sure that I cover all of them by the time I go to bed. I don't carry any email forward from day to day. Wow. You know, I mean, if you can do it, surely the small startup CTO can do that as well. It's all about organizing it in a way that you can manage it. Yeah. And it's interesting when I, I coach a lot of CTOs and when I talk to them, I'm like, listen, the first sign that you're starting to lose your people is when you feel it's okay to not respond to emails in a timely fashion. And it seems like such a small thing, but I know how I feel when I email someone and I get a response like at least within the same day. I feel a sense of importance and I think that that's a pretty easy thing to do to help people feel relevant and seen. It is important. Look, communication channels are very critical in leadership. Connection is so important. Staying on top of what's going on with everybody is important. Helping each other is important. That said, I'll also say that I don't respond to all email. I read them all. I don't necessarily respond to all of them. Mm. And I have a ritual where 
every fall and spring, I go through, clean up my distribution lists and subscriptions and so on, that I'm also limiting the email to what I need to be effective and where I can do my best as well. Do you check emails on your phone? I do. Okay. What I have on the phone is a set of important distribution lists and people. For those, I get a notification, which I need to pay attention to immediately. And if I'm in uh, transit during travel or some other situation, that's when I do email on, on phone as well. Oh, okay. So I'm amazed. Maybe you can tell the audience which time and date you put me into the VIP list. <laughs> if you and I were working with each other on a day-to-day -day basis and oh. I was critical to you or you were critical <laughs> to me, that is exactly how one gets on a VIP list. Yeah, and no, I'm always amazed at how in the end email is king. It's this unbelievable way. Though, you know, communication has gone well beyond email at this point in time. Internally within the company, we use Slack and Teams. Externally, as you know, even with some of the customers, we use text messages and WhatsApp and things of that nature. But attention is important. Response is important. But at the same time, managing communication traffic is an important skill too. Yeah, and now you've got, unfortunately hacked my brain because now I have to quickly ask you, how do you manage your Slack? As I said before, part of it is managing what the incoming volume is. And for that, I have this ritual that I do once in fall and once in spring. I call it spring cleaning and fall clean. Distribution lists, Slack channels, other subscriptions and so on. I go and methodically remove the ones that are no longer valuable to me or I'm not valuable to. Slack, fortunately, is asynchronous. It doesn't mean that you have to respond in real time. I set expectation in my status saying like, hey, look, if you want to get me urgently, get on a phone call. If it's on Slack, I'll respond in due time. And I find Slack to be great. The reason I find it to be great is I get to connect with a lot more people in the organization and industry through Slack. Oftentimes, it may be a one-minute interaction of substance. Now, you don't need to set up a 30-minute meeting for that or a one-hour meeting for that or be extremely thoughtful in writing an email that is well said in a small phrase. And so I like it. I don't mind the interruptions because I don't get interrupted. I command how I use Slack. Slack doesn't command how I spend my time. Let's just put that on loudspeaker. The challenge there is that I think it is an asynchronous tool that has somehow become synchronous where people feel like they have to converse, they have to respond. And so I love that idea of setting a status that just says, hey, I'll get to this when I get to this. If you really need me differently, do that. So let's get an idea of scale. We've spoken a few times. I know roles are evolving, responsibilities evolve. Are you still the CTO at PayPal? Yes, I'm the CTO. And at this point, I'm the executive vice president for product and platform engineering as of January of this year. Prior to this, I ran the foundation in technology for PayPal, which included infrastructure, cybersecurity, data platforms, IT, and architecture. What I did as of the beginning of this year is I moved over to the other side of the line of engineering, which is around product and platform engineering. And this includes merchant engineering, everything we do for our merchants, 
consumer engineering, all the things that we put out for our consumers, payments engineering, which is the core of what PayPal is as a business, and a lot of underlying platforms like identity, risk, compliance, privacy, and so on. This role is very exciting. It's something I've wanted to do in my career, and I made that transition at the beginning of the year. Wow. And so is this sort of in the modality of the technology voice and the product voice, the voice of customer all sort of being in one? You know, there's some people who think it's good for the CTO to also be in charge of product. There are other people who say there should be a good wall between that in terms of communication and standards. So is this move one where the technology and the product is moved closer through you? It is a customer-facing role. I actively work with the chief product officer organization. They are the pulse for the customer. They understand exactly what the customer needs are. They're the one that formulate the product strategy. But then to take that and execute on it and to create amazing products and services for our customers, that's what this role is about. It touches the customers. It allows us to execute a continuous evolution of the experiences both consumers and merchants have. That's the difference in this role. Think of it as product development for a tech company. That is what this role is about. So this brings you a lot closer than if I can call it from the back of the room to the front of the room. So how products are being designed, the experiences, according to then a strategy that gets put forth by your CPO office. Yeah, I understand that. That's probably very exciting. So just so our audience can understand scale, when we're talking to CTOs, we generally talk about the team sizes, the budgets. I think it's sometimes hard to imagine just how large PayPal is. So whatever public information's out there would be fun to maybe talk about. If I look at you as the person in front of me, how many people roll up to you in your departments and departments of departments? I'm going to start with the customer in terms of demonstrating scale and then work back into what the organization is, if you don't mind. PayPal is a very familiar service to so many people around the world. We have 400 million consumers. We have 30 million merchants around the world. And we operate in 200 markets and 100 different currencies. This all translated to about $1.2 trillion in payments last year in 2021. That is the scale of PayPal. And we offer all kinds of products and services. Two friends sending money to each other, sending money to your family, buying something online with checkout. For that matter, saving money in your account or getting the best deal that you can. In fact, in some cases, helping you return something that you thought you wanted but don't want anymore back to the merchant, and so much more. What that means is, on the inside, PayPal is a very diverse organization, lots of different functions, technologies at the core of all of that. As a CTO and the EVP of Product and Platform Engineering, I have an organization of about 10,000 people. My budget is a 10-figure budget. And I'll leave it at that. And this is where, as a leader, and even as a CTO, you can't just be the chief geek. You have to be a holistic leader that understands the business, of course, is an expert at technology, 
has to run a large organization, has to manage a large budget, and together execute towards the outcomes that we need in terms of continuing to grow as a company and continuing to move towards that purpose and mission that we have set. Amazing. Everybody who works at PayPal feels very proud when we make a difference for people, when we make it easy, when we create reach for them to move and manage money in a way that's effective for them and they can achieve their life goals through those means and mechanisms. Mm. And there are amazing stories that yeah. I hear from merchants, from consumers yeah. across the globe all the time. Yeah, it's, it's really incredible. So you being so much closer to the design of these products, the design of these services, I can understand how you would say this is something you've wanted and are excited about. So congrats. Thank you. So at Seven CTOs, we are currently digging really deep into the topic of organizational influence, relevance, in some cases, branding, relationships, our networks. And I wanted to have you on the CTO studio today because I can imagine an organization of 10,000 people you know, your first team all the way down to people who are very far removed from you, both geographically and probably organizationally. So I wanted to dig in a little bit to you on how do you see influence? How do you see relevance? How do you brand yourself, for lack of a better phrase? Because in the end, people only know the Shri brand, I suppose, the, the brand of CTO leadership internally. Of course, externally, there's a whole different ball game of customer-facing, merchant-facing, B2B-facing. So I want to dig in a little bit as to how you see your personal influence in your role as CTO. There are so many things to dissect there. Let me start by saying what I said before, which is to be an effective leader, connecting with various different groups of people and stakeholders are important. I'll start with the most important one, which is our engineers. With our engineers, I'm just another geek. I'm somebody that can have a conversation with them in a hallway or on a whiteboard or for that matter on a video call. I'm often the one that's curious where I'll read something somewhere in a Slack channel or on an internal blog post they, they put out and I'll reach out to them and go, hey, say more about that. How did you come up with this decision and so on? And connecting with them on their trade at their level is where I learn the most. So I'm being selfish when I do that. But at the same time, I build a connection with them. I also have many other routines that I have put up. One is a session called show and tell that anyone, any engineer in the company can sign up for. They may want to come and show me a demo, some code, some new technique they found some amazing thing they rolled out, whatever it may be. And we have an internal site where they can go sign up for that. There are weeks where every single day I have a show and tell session. There are weeks where I have only one. But that's another way of connecting. Now, I also need to connect with the managers in the organization and leaders in the organization. And there is peacetime activity in terms of regular execution. There is wartime act activity in terms of incidents and crisis and so on. There are times when I meet with external merchants under circumstances where we are discussing strategy. And there are sometimes I meet merchants where they're not quite satisfied with what we are doing 
and have some feedback that we need to receive and work on. At the same time, I often get to meet with diplomats and regulators. I meet with other partners in the industry. So it's a massive ecosystem within the company, but then across the industry and the sector as well. One of the things that you need to do as an individual is the ability to modulate across all of that. You need to reach that audience in the setting that would be most effective for interaction with that audience. And part of that is substance has to be your foundation. You talked about relevance. Where does relevance actually come from? Relevance comes from knowledge of reality, expertise in an area of topic, but being sufficiently educated about the breadth of the business. So you need all three. As you do that, you can jump into any conversation in any context and carry that conversation to an outcome of value. So all of this matters, like the emotional quotient on the one hand to be able to connect with anyone. Number two, to understand the context and ensure that there is a conversation of value and to stay continuously relevant by being a learner, by being curious about everything that you encounter. That's how you do it. It's not easy, but if you take a scientific approach to it, if you follow a method, if you follow certain habits, it becomes a part of who you are. I love that so much. And I feel like we as evolving people inside of the role of CTO will probably optimize more to one of those three things that you mentioned. And I love sort of the pay attention to all three equally. I really think that is a key to establishing an authentic relevance with your teams. Yeah, that's a great point you brought up right there, authenticity. Authenticity is extremely important. In fact, it's foundational to creating trust in any relationship. And that is primarily about making sure that the way you express yourself and the way you interact is in harmony with your core value system. That's how you come across as authentic. And I think authentic is what creates trust and the right kind of strong relationships over time. This is something that I want to dig in a little bit because when I help a company, sometimes I'll take on an interim CTO role or I will help for a few months. And when I enter into that domain, I, of course, have very little understanding or I should say experience with the technology. So it's almost like there's a slow curve to learning. What's the terminology? What's, what are the existing contracts? What does this mean for people? But it almost seems like on day one, you can do authenticity and relationship. That part doesn't really need any learning. That part just show up, focus on the human, and almost everything follows from that. It's so well said. You are the expert at who you are. So being yourself is actually the easy part, and that's about the authenticity and so on. On the other hand, it's a new company, it's a new culture, it's a new business. Those are new things that you're going to learn, and that'll take a curve over time. By the way, in many ways, building amazing relationships as soon as you walk in is probably the best way for you to learn fast, right? Because everyone there will help you on your learning journey. It's like if you could just learn that as a leader, it's about the human, which 
ostensibly is sort of a cliche. Yeah, leadership is about serving people, helping people, but it gets clouded so much by what do they think about me? Did I sound stupid? You're constantly having to regulate yourself and be like, okay, you know, is Sri still doing this? Is Melissa angry with me? Is everybody cool? And all of that stuff happens in relationships all the time. And especially when you're interacting through emails and Slack, and there's all these different touch points with humans. Yeah. Now, look, all of us have a tendency to overthink it a bit too much. What's important is to give yourself permission to not be perfect. For example, I believe that I'm a continuous work in progress. There is never going to be any period of time or any destination where I feel like, oh, at this point, I've achieved what I want to be. I think that's going to be a lifelong journey. We are all a continuous work in progress. We improve every single day. And we do that in most cases based on reflecting about ourselves, like you just did. And over time, you take the things that are more effective and you do more of that. And you take things that are not as effective and you do less of that. And you take things that surprise you that you did it in a negative way and say, you diminish that. And some things that surprise you in a positive way and you'll say, okay, let me enhance that going forward. Sri, if you, you know, maybe if I can get real with you a bit, like how on earth do you handle the awkward exchange or maybe the exchange where you feel a little bit, oh, I'm uncertain how that landed at your executive level, when your engineers, like when you walk in the room and everyone sort of stops talking or, you know, understanding that we're not perfect and we're a work in progress always to me feels like a super easy thing to contemplate when it's cognitive. But as soon as it hits the emotion, that EQ quadrant of self-management is so critical at that point. How do you, at this scale, at this level, with all these different touch points, how do you handle moments where you don't feel great about yourself or about what you just said or what you proposed or how someone responded to you in a way that you didn't expect? I may get philosophical for a second, but please, please. Here's what I'll tell you. Earlier in my career, I found that what I called my identity was outside of me. And the best way I can explain it is my perception of me was not what I thought of me. It's what I thought you thought about me. And think about the number of redirections there, right? It's my perception of what you're thinking about me. First of all, I don't know what you're thinking, but I'm making that up in my head. So it's a thought about a thought. And what I recognized is in terms of self-management, the best thing to do is to move that locus of identity internally within me. And today, I'm the best evaluator of me and the worst evaluator. And that gives me certain command on emotions over time. There used to be a time when something small went wrong. It would take me a week to get over and get back into the rhythm. And then as I started to scale and deal with more and more situations of different kinds, that probably reduced down to, okay, one day to get over a situation. And with even more scale and even more situations, that became a one-hour thing to the point where now, for most of the things that I used to obsess about for a week or like overthink it, now between two meetings or two conversations, I can switch out 
and mm. start to become a part of the new stream. So it's a bit of practice and habit and exposure to situations that are diverse. And the last thing I'll say on this is that key shift occurred when I learned about that concept of locus of identity and also asked myself, what am I doing in terms of judging things and people around me on a continuous basis? And learning what happens when you stop doing that and mm. how much more productive you are in a collaborative fashion. Mm. And so, so all of these psychological factors and experiments with myself is what got me to a place where things can occur. You don't overthink it. You put it in the framework of, will this matter five years from now? Will this matter a year from now? Will this matter a month from now? If it doesn't matter two days from now, there's no reason to overthink it or obsess on it so much that it limits you from your potential. Yeah, I think that's so powerful, especially if you're able to see all these interactions as data points that you can learn from. Exactly. Of course, but if you're tired and you are overworked and you're exhausted and you are sad because your son was crying at school, I mean... It's really amazing how aware you need to be. Why am I so agitated today? Oh, it's got nothing to do with my engineer saying something about the deployment. It's got everything to do with the fact that I came into this conversation upset. Yeah, look, I mean, the best definition of stress that I've heard is not what happens to you, but how you react to what happens to you. One tip I can can provide, a hack, if you will, is during the week, like for me, it happens to be Saturday nights, you spend some time in taking stock of that week and reflecting on it. Those are better moments for taking what happened to you and making something out of it versus always doing it in the moment in itself. In the moment, right? yes. So find a quiet time, find some alone time, reflect back on the week, look at those things that you didn't quite think went like you wanted, and then ask yourself, okay, How's that going to change going forward? Because history is done. Every second that's passed is over. So the the Saturday night thing, do you open a little notebook or do you just sip on something and you reflect? Do you chit-chat or you're pretending to play chess, but you're actually thinking about other things? It could be a notebook. It could be my Apple Pencil and an iPad. It could be sometimes just quietness is a underestimated practice Mm. in terms of what it can do for you. So it could be any of those different ways. It is alone time for sure. Whether I have something in my hand to write or scribble, that's optional. It does seem like people who have a handle on reflection and have a habit of reflection in this way really do have an advantage around going into their weeks with some sort of resolve or some new learning On the other end of it, I will oftentimes hear someone say, hey, I was reflecting on this thing over the weekend and, you know, I do realize that something you said bothered me, so I would love to clean it up with you. And then I realized to myself, wow, that was something that they could have blown up in the moment, but they are cleaning it up with me in in a more thoughtful way. And I think that probably generates a lot more safety and trust. It absolutely does. In fact, most of my apology emails go out on a Monday morning. (laughs) <laughs> because I've reflected on it on Saturday night, I realized, and sometimes it goes to the extent of saying, you know, 
what you experienced that day was not the best of me. And I promise to do better going forward. And you have to have the humility to do that because what comes out of that is actually a stronger relationship than was even possible before. Wow. Apology emails on Mondays. Maybe we'll title the show that. I love that. Just we sort of wrap up soon. Let's talk a little bit about your network, Shri. How do you use it? How do you build it? How do you rely on it? How do you avoid it? How do you influence it? I'd love to know, as I think about your role and scale, what are you doing to nurture it, to grow it? Do you even grow it still? Do you need it? I'd love to know sort of how you view these things. So two aspects to the network. One is the internal network you build within the company, and one is the external network. Both are important at all levels. And on the internal network, part of the network that I call the information network, part of the network that I call the expert network, and part of it is just educational network. You have to keep in mind is within a company, the primary operating system is the reporting relationships and how people have managers and they may have managers and they have people and so on. That's the primary operating system in any corporation. But Real information and real work actually gets done through a secondary operating system of experts connecting with each other, agnostic of levels. These are people who can speak and communicate well. They can write and communicate well. They have great ideas. And they informally come together to move the organization in ways that the primary operating system cannot. Primary operating system is about aggregation of accountability. The secondary operating system is your fabric of effectiveness. Tapping into both is very, very important. If you want to change culture, you want the secondary operating system. If you actually want to make sure goals cascade, you want the primary operating system. So, so both are important. The internal network is critical. I do all kinds of things here. Like I said, I use Slack. I use random encounters in the hallways. Just curiosity often connects me with so many different people. And then on top of that, internally within PayPal, we have a utility called Random Connect, where you can sign up and say, I want to meet a random person at PayPal once every month. And to me, that sometimes is a senior leader in the company, and sometimes is the newest engineer that joined out of college in some part of the world that I get to talk to for 25 minutes. So that's the internal piece. The external one, on the other hand, has so many different aspects to it. People within your own function, CTOs and CIOs and CISOs and so on. Sometimes it is business leaders. Sometimes it is mentors. Sometimes it is academics. Sometimes it is firms that do consulting and are experts at certain things and so on. What's important about external networking is to understand that you need to build it, hone it, and nurture it independent of its utility. You have to go with pure intent of building the relationships, not expecting any return ever, but knowing fully well that when you need the network, the network will actually come into play and will give you all the value that a network gives you. Connections, information, education, awareness, sometimes being able to see around the blind spots, understanding trends, both good and bad that are happening in the industry, in the world, and things of that nature, it becomes a surface area of learning that is unlike any other. I mean, of course, look, subscribe to articles and books and blogs and this and that and the other. 
But where is the best source for all of that? It is what the network recommends to you. That's the best source of even the articles and posts and other things that you can pursue. Networking is very important. Networking is important to grow both professionally and personally. In doing so, what you do is you allow the world to conspire with you on your journey. Hmm. Now, do you find that the mantle of your office can be a burden either internally or externally? Absolutely, it can be. And internally, what happens, and discuss a little bit about the concept of being approachable. What does approachable mean? And that itself is a set of behaviors, a level of awareness, and a method of interaction. That's what approachable means. Of course, the fact that I reported to the CEO, I'm the CTO of the company, and I'm one of the top 10 people in the company, without any attempt, just creates what I call a power distance. So there are a lot of people that hesitate in reaching out to you, even though there may be a value interaction that can occur. Now, how do you bust that? Like I said before, it's about the perceptions people have. Mm -hmm. All of us are human beings. We have exactly the same problems personally. We all have very similar aspirations and biases and fears and so on. So humanly, you're no different. You're exactly the same people, but there's still a barrier. And the barrier is best addressed through how you come across. When you're walking the halls, do you have headphones in your ears and you're walking through without making eye contact or you're fully present? You're making eye contact, you're smiling, you're saying hello, you're asking how people are, you're asking them what they're working on. And guess what? The word spreads. And when it does, you create a higher level of psychological safety for people to reach, for people to interact, for people to share, to feel the connection, and so on. And that is important, both internally within the company and externally. How you treat people matters. Whether you ever get a second conversation with an individual in your external network depends on what you did in the first conversation. Did you go prepared? Was it a conversation of value, a conversation of warmth? All of that matters. And honing and nurturing the network is extremely critical because in the long term, long after you're done with your role and your job and your title is gone, that network is the one that makes you proud. And everyone needs that just a little bit. I love that. And what I heard there that really I want to double click on is the responsibility of busting that perception around your office lies with you. It does. It solely lies with me. And by the way, it also lies with people who work around me, like say, for example, my executive assistant, my chief of staff, my directs, the inner circle, as you call it, when they meet with other people, they're saying, oh, don't take that topic to Sri. No, no, no. Don't ever bring that up. Don't put it that way. Those are all second-order implicit barriers people yes. are creating, sometimes without your own knowledge. That's why what is important is, now let's talk about brand, right? You talked about brand. What is brand at the end of the day? Brand is a combination of all of these things. How you're perceived is what brand is about. How a thing is perceived is what its brand is. And we have many amazing brands. And the moment you mention the name of the brand, 
suddenly there are various characteristics that come to mind, whether that's an Apple or a PayPal or a Venmo. Suddenly, in your mind, you created a mental model of okay, what that word actually means. The same thing happens with your name. When your name is mentioned, what is the characteristics that people implicitly jump to within a millisecond? That's what your brand is. Openness, friendliness, authority, competition, humility. I'm just naming the things that come up when I think of you. Oh, <laughs> thank you. You know, I think about my interaction. I love what you said about the office also carries the responsibility and can implicitly be sabotaging your brand by saying, oh, no, 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 you know, he doesn't do meetings on Mondays. Even if that's true, it could be working against the brand of openness and, and accessibility that you're trying to create. I really love that. I will say, when I first approached you about talking about this topic, I was really blown away by Paul reaching out and saying, okay, let's chat about this and, and, and the friendliness and the follow-up. I think I was away. I think my wife and I, we were traveling a lot, so I wasn't getting back to Paul. And Paul was like, hey, man, just checking in to see. And I was thinking to myself, wow, this is a level of engagement and interaction that I would not expect from a company at that scale. So if Paul's listening, kudos, man. Just like I said, working with your people has been huge. And I definitely can see how they carry those values through. So, Yeah, cheers. Etienne, what I'll say is the reason any one of us reach where we reach eventually is because a lot of people lend their shoulders and advice and comfort and help. And it must be an obligation for anyone that grows to any level to do that mm. for others. Their individual competency and passion and energy and development and behaviors absolutely are the main ingredients for how a person grows or where they reach. That said, don't underestimate what the ecosystem around you did for you. And when you get there, you need to give that back to the ecosystem. In this case, I've loved my conversations with the cohort of CTOs that you bring together and have conversations of substance with. The moment you reached out, I wanted to have this conversation. I love it. And reach out and see what I can do to help anyone that's in any part of their journey. Thank you, Sri. Uh, I can feel it. You're a, people love referring to the talks we've had even to this day. So you've been wonderful to us. I think ending on that note where a lot of CTOs listening have gotten to places of success, accomplishment, influence, and I think never forgetting that they are simply part of an ecosystem that is in a different state to give back is a brilliant way to view all our interactions. So Sri, I very, very much thank you for being with me. Of course, always we'll count the days down till our next conversation, but thank you so much for being with us. Etienne, thank you so much for having me today. And it was a fun conversation. I did not know in the beginning where this would go, but I think we covered a lot of great topics. And by the way, we didn't even touch a little bit on technology, even though we talked about the role of the CTO. And yet it was fun. Though I'm thank a geek, you. I think all the aspects that go beyond the geek is what truly makes a good CTO in my mind. Anybody watching just has to look at Sri's background to see he is one of us. So uh, I love that. Talk to you soon, Sri. Thank you very much. Thank you, Etienne.